Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Tess Kosad, co-founder and CEO of Bayer Fertility, a startup providing at-home, affordable, clinical-grade fertility treatment. Having run a B2B marketing agency, Emberson Ventures, and scaling it in three years to lead global advertising campaigns for Fortune 500 companies, Tess launched in 2018 the femtech brand Hers by Design and later that year was the first woman to lead a digital startup accelerator program in Saudi Arabia. Her passion for women-focused solutions turns the problems in the broken fertility care industry, with infertility affecting one in six of us, and families desperately seeking care they can't access or afford. Bayer Fertility was launched in 2020 and recently announced it's raised $3.2 million to release its at-home fertility treatment to early adopters in the UK. It's great to have you here. Tell me in your own words, this bare fertility thing, because I think obviously we're going to talk all about this. It's a very specific product which does a very specific thing, a very important thing. I think it's important that we're clear what it is. Absolutely. It is a very specific product. So what we have built is an insemination device. It sounds kind of scary, but essentially it is a applicator that contains what's called a cervical cap. Now, a cervical cap, you can think of it a little bit like a menstrual cup for anyone familiar with what that looks like imagine a small sort of egg cup shaped thing made out of silicon so i'm i'm making something quite complex sound really quite childish actually but um but clear i think it's important though because i think sometimes that the science can get in the way of the obviously the importance is the efficacy of the thing but also it's important to know what it looks like yeah, literally totally, in this case totally. so it's a silicon cup it's a silicon cup and it is folded and placed inside the applicator. Now what happens is you pour semen down into the cup using a funnel and then you remove the funnel and you use the applicator to insert that cervical cap into the vaginal canal where you turn a handle at which pushes the cap out onto the cervix. So it is delivering an old clinical treatment actually called intracervical insemination, ICI. Yeah. And ICI was sort of the de facto fertility treatment up until around the, I want to say the late 70s when IVF and subsequently IUI were commercialized. And ICI, your kind of friendly neighborhood fertility treatment, really fell off the menu of available options. And, and all we've done is bring it back and bring it back in a way that you can do it at home for a 20th the cost of IVF. And that's really the thing, isn't it? It's... And I think it's important to be clear, as I said, because I know some people go, oh, it's very, it's very early to be, to be hearing these things. I think it doesn't matter when you hear it. It's just the practicality of changing, literally changing someone's life, changing exactly. an individual's life or a, a family's life or whatever. Exactly. But the at-home bit is the big bit, isn't it? What we're in the middle of now is a revolution exactly. where it's being taken from the institution over there but now it's in your home because we can do those things. And that, and, totally. and why that appealed to you? Why is Tess sitting here talking to me about this? Yeah, I, I absolutely abhor anything that's unfair. And I think when I started looking at the fertility world, I started to realize, well, hang on a second. There's whole groups of people that are completely excluded from receiving care. You know, let's, let's talk about 
same-sex female couples and what they have to go through to conceive with sort of donors and 12 rounds of self-funded IUI before they're eligible for IVF on the NHS. I mean, there's, there's so many instances in which I looked at this and I just thought, wow. Talk about human rights, you know, making a baby, having a family, having sort of autonomy and ownership over that part of your life. Talk about it being stripped away. And it just seemed wild to me. So it seemed like an industry in need of a shakeup. And the science piece, obviously, because it's important, your relationship with science. Honestly, a very failed astrophysicist who then went to the dark side, which is also known as the business school, to finish my degree. And I am, honestly, at my core, I'm a marketing person. So I come to life when I'm telling stories. That's really my jam. Now, of course, when you described how this works, I imagine if I'm one of the 280 plus people that you spoke to, most of whom are men, as we know, in the venture world, (laughs) some of them would have been possibly uncomfortable hearing, for for some reason, for unknown reason to me, uncomfortable hearing anatomical details and so on and so forth. Is that true, Tess? Yes, unequivocally. Let me preface this by saying, when I raised my very first funding round, I had sort of 284 conversations, I think it was, to end up closing that round. Very precise number. It's quite, well, once it passes about 150, you become so incredulous, you keep track. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I kept track, which means that you end up having a lot of conversations with strangers where you're using words like vaginal canal to describe the thing that you are building. And I had a great sample uh, of these conversations and I, I've got to say there were a number of moments where you have to explain what you've built where it goes how it works and it, there were a number of moments where you know I remember one so clearly at a conversation with quite a young VC and he was trying to ask me questions about the product so he started his question you know very earnestly really lovely lovely guy saying uh, so it goes in the v- it goes in the v- <laughs> I just remember thinking Oh, God, if you can't say the word vagina, you're not allowed on my cap table. It just it really was such a, a pivotal moment for me raising. And in terms of obviously connecting the, the science of it and how it works with the bigger vision, yes. I imagine that was also critical. What did you learn on the way about the storytelling? And you mentioned that you like telling stories. What was it that you learned that, that unlocked the money that you finally raised? That's a really great question. I think you can have the best product in the world, but it is all about how you position it. It's all about how you tell the story of what you've built. You know, that allows people to really see the potential. And, and when you're raising from venture capitalists in particular, they're looking for a bet that's going to pay off and their bets are big. So you have to tell a big story. And I think the thing that I learned time and time again was to, to not back off from telling that story. It kind of feels like you're leaning forward on your skis when every fiber of your body is telling you to, to sort of step back and turn. And, and for me, the bigger story was transforming the fertility industry. You know, for too long, we assume that you're either having really frustrating sex at home or you're ending up in a fertility clinic faced with a 14,000 pound bill and a really invasive medical procedure. And it just doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And in, just in terms of the more serious side of the number of men in the VC world, or rather the, <laughs> the percentage of, to put it the other way, the percentage of money that goes to female founders. I've talked on the program a number of times with female founders, and it's about 2%, 2p in every pound, I think, goes to female found, founder-led businesses. What's going on to fix that? And is that something that Tess is interested in on a macro level, or is it something that you go, I'm doing what I do, and I can control that? Uh, I'm doing what I do, and that's all that I can control right now. 
Honestly, my goal is at some point in my career in the future to tackle that problem. For now, the way I see it is if I can solve the fertility problem and solve it well through Bea, I will get the resources that I need to be able to make a much more impactful difference to the, the amount of VC dollars that goes to female-founded teams. I think that makes sense. Stay with you for much more from my guest. It's Tess Kosad, and she's back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Michigan Innovation Series, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Lydia Kellett invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry like Tess and starting your very own thing. In this clip, focused on the health tech industry, we hear from Paulina Setsua and Elena Rueda, co-founders of Dama Health advancing the field of personalised and precision medicine with a focus on contraception fit. The Mishcon Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Dereya. For those looking to break into the femtech sector, what advice would you give? I think important thing to differentiate is whether you want to be sort of a customer-facing lifestyle business. And there's quite a lot of these things in Femtech because there's not that much medical data and medical research that we can pull on and grow your startup around that existing IP and research. Or whether you want to be more like medical grades startup, and then you have to think a bit more about regulation, clinical validation. And there's loads of things that come with that as well. And, and also which market you want to serve and whether you want to go into the NHS business, because very often you have to really get involved in that, in the processes and sort of build a business around it as well. As Paulina said, you have to really know what type of business you want to run from what problem you're solving to is this more of a tech business? Is this more of a direct-to-consumer business? Mm -hmm. The femtech world is very open and very collaborative Mm -hmm. because I think femtech founders and women's health founders are really realizing that there's power in the Mm -hmm. ecosystem and helping each other. There's so much overlap. Your data could help us. Mm -hmm. Our data could help you. And I think there's, there's all that collaboration The way we started was really just going out and speaking to people that had started a business. We we were part of hackathons. We we just became very proactive to the Mm -hmm. point where we felt confident saying, okay, we can take this next step. And I think that's just been our journey. If you don't know what to do next, you need to open up opportunities and doors for yourself to be able to take the problem like slowly, Mm -hmm. one step at a time. And speaking to women and your audience, I think, is the biggest learning. You kind of remind yourself why you're doing this. What do they want? What are you servicing? And that's the most powerful thing you could be doing. The Mishcon Innovation Series. In association with Jazz Shapers with Mishcon Dereya. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishcon Dereya. It's business, but it's personal. You can revel in all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast, and you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz and Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today is Tess Kosad, co-founder and CEO of Bayer Fertility, a startup providing at-home affordable clinical-grade fertility treatment. Where are you now? We're a few years in. The money's there. What's happening right now for you in the business, Tess? Yeah, it's an incredible time for us. So we launched product on the 5th of June, We shipped out our first kits later that month after taking pre-orders and we are now selling kits to the families that come our way, the the families who are trying to build and go on their journey. And really excitingly, we have our first pregnancies. Oh, Um, brilliant. Well, it's happening. It's happening. And just to be clear, um, the cost, I think you said, is around a 20th 
of, of, of other methodologies. Yes. That's correct. Good. And in terms of efficacy, you've yes. talked about pregnancies now. How does it stack up against other forms of um, fertility treatment? Really interesting. So the NICE guideline updated in 2022 to include ICI and the efficacy that they cited for ICI was just similar to that of IUI, intrauterine insemination. So what we've essentially done is create a treatment that is at home, hormone free, simple, low cost that has similar efficacy to what you would get were you to walk through the doors of a fertility clinic and get IUI. It's about 10% in a single cycle. And the data shows that it rises to about 50% over six consecutive cycles. And to put that into perspective, compared to IVF, the IVF efficacy rate in the UK right now is about 27% for one cycle. I mean, you're selling, you're selling hope and we you're are. selling life, which are two quite big things. Yes. Probably the very biggest things that any of us as humans, if we think about it, have, have got to play with. Do you feel that responsibility? So much so. And you've got to be so careful with it. You know, yes, we're selling hope, but we're realistic that we're selling a 10% chance in your first treatment kit. You know, there's 90% chance that it will not work for you on the first go. The magic of this treatment is that you can access multiple cycles and sort of tap into what is referred to as cumulative efficacy. So the more you try, the higher your chance of it working. Now, the problem is when a single cycle of IVF is costing you 5,000 pounds, very few people have the ability to, to do that six times in a row. And that doesn't even mention the sort of the physical toll on the body of IVF. So I really do feel the responsibility of selling hope and selling hope to, to people who for so long have, have really been so desperate. We really do tread carefully. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was going to ask you this question. You're obviously a young person, which is great, <laughs> which is great. He says enviously. And I meet many young founders. And the thing that I always think about is just how quickly you learn and how much you know versus your average person in, in your age group, to just put it like that. That cumulative effect of learning, which is the same as the cumulative trying and trying and trying and you increase your chances. Do you feel that? Do you feel wiser now than you could have imagined? Or are you still going, I don't know anything? From when, you, from when you started this? It's such a good question. Every time I look back and think, God, I've learned so much. I think as the years have gone by, I've done that so frequently that I've come to realize that I will likely continue to do that, which sort of helps keep me grounded in a way. You know, in three months, I'll look back on where I was today and think, gosh, why didn't I know that? Yeah, the learning curve is, is really enormous. And I once read an article by a, a female founder, actually, who who left her company and she said she framed entrepreneurship as a vehicle for growth. And I thought that was kind of cool. It's um, certainly a, a thankless task sometimes. But you know, the truth is, I mean, I, I started earning money when I was 12 and I was in a business when I was 15. And here I am at the, at the ripe old age of 52. The more I know, the less I feel I know. I literally feel like I know exactly. al almost nothing. And the truth is I probably know a little bit about lots of things, so it's okay. I think we're all in the same journey. It just happens at different times at a different velocity, I imagine, when you're, as you said, running a business. We talked about that cumulative growth. And in your own journey, like anyone's, uh, mine especially, there have been loads of times when it hasn't quite gone to plan. Are there things that stick out for you that haven't gone to plan with regard to what you learned? Or is it a general kind of, it's on the job and you just instinctively know, do A, not B? 
I never instinctively know <laughs> precisely what to do. I'm able to recognize the feelings in my gut that tell me that I must do something. Um, and then it's always a bit of a scramble to figure out what to do. I mean, it hasn't always been smooth sailing, but I don't think any startup is smooth sailing. I think we all just have our own versions of struggles, but there have been, I mean, there have been some hilarious moments. There have been some heartbreaking moments and and we deal with people in a very vulnerable time in their lives and, and, you know, we get our hearts broken by their stories all the time. But I think, you know, there's been the time that we accidentally sprayed fake semen all over the glass wall at WeWork. There's... (laughs) The moment that we were running a, a usability study and watched a user snap a device in half going into a medical model of a female pelvis that we fondly refer to as the Wolverine. There have been <laughs> many moments in the life of this company where you just put your head in your hands and you think, oh my God. And you take a breath. And then those are the moments where I think I've never felt clearer as a CEO on the backside of those. I imagine also, and obviously we've just met, but you're you're a thoughtful person. You think about stuff like you say, you know, you don't you don't immediately move into an A or B. You're you're gonna you're gonna reflect. I imagine also it, you can feel pretty vulnerable in this position. Of course people look and go, wow, this test she's got found uh, money from clever people <laughs> like Octopus and Jam Jar and all this other stuff. They must, you know, these are really great venture capital businesses. She must know what she's doing. But it's you. It's just little old Tess, right? Is that how it feels sometimes? Just me. Yeah. I, I think for me what's really uncomfortable sometimes is when the the headlines come out. And I read the headlines and I think, gosh, I didn't recognize anything we did in that in that story. And I don't think anyone knows what they're doing when they're doing this game. And and I think, you know, I am quite thoughtful, but one of the things that I've always had to learn the hard way in many situations is that I actually need to make decisions faster and move faster a lot of the time. You know, so I think one of the first times I was faced with a sort of cripplingly difficult situation, I knew what I needed to do. Boy, did I. And it took me nine months to get there. And it was one of these horrible situations where I just thought, gosh, if I do this it could kill the company. And if I don't do this, it definitely will kill the company. Mm-hmm. And it took me nine months of trying to put the chess pieces into the optimum place so that this would absolutely work out. And you can't do that. You've got to move faster. And that's really one of the main things that I've learned the hard way, actually. And and now sometimes I'll look at something and make a decision within a couple of weeks or, or a couple of hours sometimes because you just don't have the time. And we really feel that even more acutely in a world where we have real humans using this device at home and conceiving and, and calling us with questions you just don't have time. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest there, it's Tess Kosad, and we've got some belting blues from Big Mama Thornton too. That's in just a moment, don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Tesco Sad is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. Something you said resonated with me about stories. And obviously, you're, as you said, you're the marketing person and you love, you love to tell the story. Do you think you tell the story to yourself that this is all good throughout? Or is this, are you driven by the truth for yourself? I don't mean the way you have to project to other people either about how Tess is doing or how the business is doing, but the inner voice. It's a terrible critic. <laughs> right. And why? Why, Tess? Interestingly, I have 
thought quite deeply about this. I think I am, as many entrepreneurs are, a perfectionist. And becoming an entrepreneur teaches you every day, very brutally, that you cannot be that. It's sort of perfect as the enemy of done, I think, is the, is the common catchphrase. But no, the story I tell myself about how we're actually doing is is usually not as rosy as how we are doing. And And really my job is to is to balance that and to hold those two things to be simultaneously true. Yes, it looks like things are going well. Yes, they are going incredibly well. You know, we've launched a groundbreaking treatment. We've had pregnancies. We've made babies. There's nothing else like it on the market. You know, things are going incredibly well. And it's a startup. My job is to to hold those risks and those successes simultaneously and 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 make better decisions knowing both to be true. Do you coach yourself or have external people helping you go, do you know what, it's good to be critical, but it's it can be crippling? Have you got that going on as well? I've had coaches in the past. Um, I have very supportive friends these mm. days, but I absolutely have a support network around me of voices that help me balance out my own. It's I would say that it's completely imperative. Yeah, it, so- it sounds like it is, because otherwise you're going to give yourself an overly tough time. And it, <laughs> then it stops you doing all those wonderful things, Tess. It does. Yeah, it I mean, complacency does. is one thing, but but kind of inertia because you go, ah, oh, this isn't going to be good. That's that's not cool either. It absolutely does. And the role, of course, has changed. You were focused on raising money. Now you're into this phase. Have you had to mentally switch gears and go, right, I've got to build, this is about growth. I did that bit. and. If you have, how have you managed to to change that gear? Because they're very different modes. I'm in the middle of it now. And I've got to say, it's been one of the most challenging transitions that I've experienced as a founder. You know, we spent three years in development building this in isolation. And it was a lot of fun and it was really hard. And But you're building something in isolation. We are now in a world where we are live and in the market. We're pursuing growth. And I have gone from raising and telling the story of what this can and will be to faced with growing into what I have always believed it will be. And it's a really interesting place to be. It's certainly been one of the hardest transitions for me, building Bayer. And is the hard bit just kind of holding the line and knowing you're on the high wire but not looking down? Because you have your process, you have your path. Is it that mostly? I The way I imagine it is it's a little bit like standing with your toes over the edge of a cliff. And you know that you will be fine. You know that if you just step off, you will absolutely fly. And and yet there you are standing on the edge of a cliff. And uh, yeah. it's a really interesting place to be. It is certainly a sort of key moment for me as a founder. And, and jumping off has has taken a lot of willpower. Keep going with the willpower. It's been, it's been great to meet you. It's early days, but already you've, you know, you've, there's at least there's money in the bank. You've got a runway, as they say. We do. And you've got a great product by the sounds of it. So wishing you, as I do all the people I meet on the program, wishing you all the best of, of luck. Thanks I'm for sure having me. I'm yeah. fingers crossed it will happen. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Awakening by Leon Parker. I chose this song because it takes me back... Gosh, it takes me back probably 20 years. And it was just such a fun and happy time. You know, it was sort of dancing around the kitchen. It was when the whole world was a playground. And that song just reminds me of that feeling. I love it so much. Leon Parker there with Awakening, the song choice of my business shaper today, Tess Kosad. She talked about startups being a vehicle for personal growth, as well as, of course, building the business. She talked about moving faster. You've got to move faster. 
And finally, she said, and I like the way she's phrased this, perfection is the enemy of done. What a simple way of thinking about life. Great stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.